Hi, I'm Dr. Caroline Leaf and welcome to my podcast, Cleaning Up the Mental Mess. What is your authentic self and is it possible to find it, especially after trauma? How do we identify harmful habits and is it possible to fully unlearn them? Are Instagram therapists and social media self-help gurus doing more harm than good? Well, in today's podcast, I chat with Dr. Nicola Pera about these questions and she gives some amazing answers. Dr. Nicola Pera is the author of the number one New York Times bestselling book, How to Do the Work, and the recently released bestselling How to Meet Yourself workbook. She is the creator of the Self-Healers Movement and founded the Self-Healer Circle, the first virtual self-guided healing membership where members in over 100 countries are joining together to heal in community. She is the host of the weekly ad-free podcast, Self-Healers Soundboard, with over 5 million downloads. So let's dive in. Dr. Nicola Pera, oh, I love talking to you. This is going to be amazing, this interview. We have such great times talking together. You're so filled with wisdom. So thank you for coming back on my podcast. I'm really honored. Thank you so much for having me. Of course. So the last time I spoke to you, you in transition to another part of the country, and now you settled and you've now written another book and you did so brilliantly in your last book. When I first interviewed you, Nicole, you know what? You had just hit a million followers and now you're close to six million. So something radical has happened in your message that, well, not some, you, from the beginning. I mean, it's just been a meteoric rise with you from the beginning, but you've touched a chord in people's hearts. And how would you talk about that? Why do you think this has happened? What have you, what is the zeitgeist that you've tapped into? Because you definitely have. I mean, it's just phenomenal. Yeah, I think if I were to really generalize it, I think what I'm talking to is the universal aspects of our human experience. And wherever it is that you're living, whatever country it is, and actually at this point, in our membership, the Self Healer Circle, we have more people from outside of the United States as members than even wow. with, within the country here. And I think that all just speaks to, again, wherever you're located geographically, there are, you know, unifying aspects of our struggles and of our healing journey. And, you know, I think that the way it's talked about in, in the content that I put out is what my hope is, is that it's talked about in an understandable and a relatable way. Because I think for a lot of the field, um, especially the field you and I come from, there's many books written on many aspects of our psychology, of our emotional world. And at least personally, what I have found is some of those books, while they're great in theory, it does feel very much like ideas, concepts mm. out there, not really the practical application of what we mean when we say ego or inner child, things that I talk about often in really relatable, understandable terms. So I think the universality of our human experiences and the ability to see in our own life aspects of these concepts, which again, I don't think are new for many of the people that are reading them, but might be read or understood in a new relatable way, allowing them to then actualize or utilize the change in their life. I totally can see that happening in, in, in how you present it. You take your own personal experiences and you take and you use a lot of that and that people love because of your, you know, you're really open about a lot of your stuff. And that's, it should be like that because we're all a mess. And so, you know, that's why I call my <laughs> podcast Cleaning Up a Mental Mess. So we're all trying to do it. It's not right. like you and I, because we've got PhDs that we've made it. I mean, we still like battling along like everyone else. And that's what I think people really need. So I agree with you, the universality of your message. And it's true, your concept you're teaching are kind of ancient if you think of it and yet you it's 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 like if you feel this do this this is how you do it and i think that's what people want because there's just so much theory out there and there's the, it isn't there there's just so much in fact one of my questions i'm going to jump straight to that because it kind of picks up on that we both instagram 
psychologists, therapists, neuroscientists, whatever, advice givers. While I think accounts like ours can be very helpful to many, do you have any concerns? I'm reading this because the question's so good, I don't want to miss any part of it, of people giving advice over social media and how can we make sure people aren't harmed? Yeah, I think, you know, with the access that we now have to information, people's ideas, the way they frame, you know, to speak to your point, you know, I often think about original thought and the reality of it is the thoughts that we're having are very original and unique to ourselves, our way of making meaning of the world, our way of communicating those. But to speak to your point, these concepts and ideas have been around since since time, ultimately. So when we talk about, you know, all now of the availability of all of these different messages, and we think about this concept of, of harm and of responsibility, I think it is, you know, as us as individual humans, it is our job to figure out the nuance, to figure out what information right applies to each of us and to learn how to look toward the information that we find helpful and how to navigate the reality that there's always going to be information that we might not agree with out there in the world. So, you know, I think as we can become informed, conscious consumers of the endless available information out there is how we set ourselves out. Because unfortunately for some of us who, you know, don't love social media and this increased access, I don't personally see it going anywhere. I do think it's going to continue to be present in our life. And, you know, when we're talking about tools and ideas and concepts, really as the consumer of that information, having that ability to to tune in and to see how it feels. And if you are gravitating toward things that feel stressful, that feel overwhelming, that feel threatening in some way, right? It is our responsibility to, to not go into those avenues. That's such a great answer because it really is telling people to be discerning. It may be great advice, but it may not be the advice you need today or said in that way and to, you know, keep looking and keep diving deep and do the work as you always like to say. I think that's always so, so great. And it always aligns with, you know, the, 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 our combined philosophy of doing the work, building habits, the time it takes, the journey and all the, all kinds of stuff, which is so important. Okay. So you have now written this workbook that's behind you. I don't have, I have the PDF, so I don't have the actual copy of the book. So I'm glad you got yours up there. Your first book was a huge success. And I know you were so anxious when you wrote that. I remember you talking about your experience to me and also on the, I mean, you know, just on social media. And that ended up being such a massive success for the reasons we've been discussing that you really know how to use yourself, your story, give people complex concepts, psychological concepts and so on, and make them very applicable and very real. So what is the inner child? This is actually what it looks like, which is really great. So now this workbook is adding to that tremendous book that you've written. Can you tell us why you wrote it and, you know, just what what need is it, what additional need is it meeting? Yeah. When I was writing actually how to do the work and with that book, you know, for those of you who have read Mm -hmm. it or not, it really kind of frames this idea that what many of us have come to, you know, assume is ourselves and our identity is really a byproduct of our earliest conditioning of our earliest environments of this subconscious mind and of our pull to repeat and find safety in the familiarity of those old habits. So it talks a lot about becoming conscious of these past experiences, like our inner child, like our ego, that are coloring our current realities. And as I was writing that book, and my intention was very much to 
similarly make the concepts in that book very practically applicable. Every chapter even ends with an action step, journaling prompts, small practices, consciousness building tools that you can begin to integrate into your daily life. I will always break change down into two simple steps. We become conscious of what we're doing and then we make new choices to create that desired outcome. So that How to Do the Work book very much follows that same sequence of concepts, hopefully understandable with the practical application, though it continued to occur to me that we are all, I like to paint the picture of a, a horse with blinders on it. Mm-hmm. We are all blind to ourselves, subjectively, oftentimes living in these patterns that we don't even notice our habits. So my hope for the workbook was to really give a kind of roadmap or guide into all of the different ways that we are habitual beings. Because if we don't know where we're starting, if we don't know what the habits are that are coloring our day, it's going to be really hard to begin to make those new choices. So the desire, the idea of the need for that more structured journey into awareness was, you know, occurring to me while I was writing the how to do the workbook. And then I thought, oh, what better of a, you know, kind of framework than an actual workbook where I take people through that journey of first seeing, observing the habitual nature. I call it our habit self that are coloring our days and then diving into first the body. As you know, in your work, you know, the body, the brain, the neurology, the nervous system, and all the dysregulation that's coloring our reactivity really needs to have that foundational balance. And then proceeding into our mental world. And again, all of those habitual narratives and stories. So for me, the idea was give people a livable roadmap that can begin to guide them on this journey of seeing consciously the habits that are creating their lives and then giving them the opportunity to make those new ones with the goal being to reconnect with themselves, that authentic inner knowing that I believe we each have inside of us that might not be how we're living from in our day-to-day moments because we probably are locked in those habitual patterns, but giving people the opportunity to create that space to begin to reconnect and be curious about who it is that they really are. Oh, I love that. And I love that you keep saying the word habits and I'm smiling all over the place and inside myself because that's an area that everyone, you know, people talk about it a lot, Nicole, but they don't. I've, as a scientist, I have been astounded at how little research there actually is on what, how long does it take a habit to form? How does a habit become this entrenched thing from childhood that becomes something that plays out and that we have to consciously go through the work of trying to find those kind of things? So we've got a massive study that we actually are now working on again to look at that nine-week cycle, that 63, 66 days of the time it takes to form a habit. We've already shown it, but we're showing it now with the neurophysiology and very, very big study. But the point being is that if we have one 63-day cycle, which is nine weeks, I think of a child, and I'm just throwing this out at you just based on the pattern. So one nine-week cycle. So you have nine weeks, which goes by very fast in anyone's life, even a child's life. And then there's multiple of those cycles played out. So if you have the same pattern of nurturing Etc., and it's happening out multiple cycles of, of nine weeks, that's becoming even more entrenched. So, what you're helping people to do is to actually, you know, help with the rewiring of that. Now, it doesn't mean if you've done, if it's five months or six years of times now, six to a year, whatever, if you do the math, it doesn't take you that long to heal. And that's the beauty of it, isn't it? And that's my next question. The habits take longer to entrench. And become more and more entrenched, but there's this very powerful conscious mind that can work with the unconscious and make change. 
And I'd love to just to comment on that. If that's, you know, your experience as a therapist, you're working now with millions of people around the world. If you are getting that kind of feedback or just what do you feel about time and habits and unwiring all these things and rebuilding? Yeah, our our consciousness, again, even going back to those two steps that I cited, consciousness, becoming aware, right, of how it is that we're showing up, of what's driving these outcomes is so foundationally the first step because the large majority of us, we we identify with our habits. That becomes who we are. We don't see any other opportunity to be any other way because we've repeated these entrenched patterns for so long that all of this is operating out of awareness. We're not even noticing that we're interpreting the, the events that are happening around us. And those interpretations are shifting our physiology right into a certain reaction. And if we're not grounded in that moment to make a new choice, we're now reacting from that emotion. Yeah. And that's so outside of our conscious awareness that we just become, well, no, this is who I am. I This angers me. I'm angry in these moments. I'm stressed out. I'm a worried individual. And then we wrap our language around it and we yeah. don't even give ourselves the possibility to be conscious to it. So that again is so foundationally important that as we begin to access our conscious mind, we're so locked and loaded in that autopilot. Our brain prefers it. It has a million other things to be doing with its caloric energy, with its attention. We're endlessly stimulated, some of us more than others. If we live in a city with noises and sounds, right? We're we're kind of prioritizing and we prefer to be unconscious to ourselves because it has benefit. So when we talk about actually firing up our conscious mind, seeing these as habits, not as ourself, then we can begin to harness that top-down processing, that incredible ability of neuroplasticity for our not only our brain to create new networks, our body to physiologically change, neurotransmitters to change, our even body structure. I've seen my, you know, very tense hunched over posture from a consistent stress response from a childhood overwhelming environment actually begin to shift to change. I physiologically and physically look and am different now, all because I allowed my conscious mind to create that change. And that's why I'm I'm laboring this point because the conscious mind is powerful if we're tapped into it. So many of us are lost in thought. We think our thoughts are us. I mean, I'm so overwhelmed. Every time we open up the membership, the self-healer circle, we always kind of navigate new members to check out the first course. There's many different courses. For now, it's been open three years. So we have 40 plus 50 courses that you can you know, Mm -hmm. navigate through. And a new course like releases every month. When you're a new member, we suggest you starting with that first foundational course, which began as the first course we ever unrolled and it was awakened consciousness. And it just offers members the tools to begin to tap into that new part of their mind. And I'm so taken back by every time we have a new enrollment. We just did so last month. So I'll see in our, we have a very much a Facebook looking yep. portal and I'll see comments and members will post you know, their, their impressions, how it was navigating, what it is to become conscious. And the number one thing that I hear from most new members is, wow, I never realized how disconnected I was, how lost in thought I was, how on autopilot I was. I never realized how unconscious I was. So to speak to your point, consciousness is incredibly powerful if we're embodying consciousness. If we're tapped into that conscious part of our mind, then, I mean, incredible, life-changing transformation is possible. We have to become conscious first. It's brilliantly explained. And it's it's when you talk about the being deliberate and intentional, we're obviously conscious, but you're talking about a 
consciousness of our conscious and of our consciousness, that metacognition, that awareness of our awareness mm-hmm. and that deep, and that then draws on that inner non-conscious wisdom or that's deep down inside of us and we can start, which is on our side. I mean, we just got to go and look and find and, you know, so it's, it's, I love that. I love that you talk about training people. You can't fix what you're not aware of. And we see from neuroscience that you have to consciously and deliberately with your mind, tell your brain what to do. And you brought this up, you know, your brain's just going to do what it's, when you're alive, <laughs> your brain's just following orders. And when you're dead, it dies. So your mind has to give the right orders and it's on different levels. And so it's really important that we do start with that consciousness. And it's so, it's so good with your work, how you practically make that available to people to get your deep aware, conscious of your consciousness. So you can tap into the depths of the non-conscious mind, which is so important. It's, it's fantastic. And I'm so glad you talk about habits because we always often associate habits just with building good habits right. in, but mm-hmm. actually those traumas, we've, there's so much languaging around trauma, 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 which is not bad. It's awareness, but we actually forget that the traumas create, the trauma is the experience that's created the habit. And we have to look at those habits as responses and so on so you explain that yes. so well so this workbook is helping people to it pairs beautifully with do the work the actual actual book it's pairing with that so it's the practical application of those things in 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 its pairing is that correct is that how you have i i think you know I, I think about them as complementary you know because i do get asked quite often do you need one or to read the other do you need to have read one first i see them very much as as complementary i think some of us are much more looking for that action backed workbook type though you can absolutely benefit from the narrative book, just as equally in my opinion. And it becomes, like I was sharing earlier, a more complimentary deep dive into witnessing of those actual habits so that then you could create change. So I I see them and my hope is for anything that I put out is that it builds on each other, that it becomes a complementary kind of whole where if you're interested in, like I said, the workbook of action or just kind of the ideas, the concepts of the narrative, you can read them separately, though then together there's greater benefit. There's nothing worse than going to a doctor's appointment expecting to be the center of attention and then your doctor seems like they have better things to do and better places to be. Instead of listening to you intently, asking how you feel and helping you along, the doctor is checking the clock. On ZocDoc, you'll find quality doctors who focus on you, listen to you and prioritize your care. ZocDoc is the only free app that lets you find and book doctors who are patient-reviewed, take your insurance, are available when you need them, and treat almost every condition under the sun. When you're not feeling your best and just trying to hold it together, finding great care shouldn't take up all your energy. And that's where ZocDoc comes in. Using their free app that millions of users rely on, you can find the right doctor that meets your needs and fits your schedule. Book an appointment with a few taps in their app and start feeling better, faster with ZocDoc. Go to ZocDoc.com leaf and download the ZocDoc app for free. Then find and book a top-rated doctor today. Many are available within 24 hours. That's Z-O-C-D-O-C dot com slash leaf, ZocDoc dot com slash leaf. The link and details will be in the show notes. Well, I just read through the whole workbook and I think it's great. It's it's really is simple, practical, and you can see my my inquiring mind immediately as I was going through it, thinking, like, I know your other books and I know your work, but I still felt, oh, I want to go back and reread that section and just, you know, build on that section again. So it's it's really great how you've done that. Okay, I want to ask you some more specific questions. You say this book will get you out of autopilot mode, and that's a concept that's used quite often as an analogy in psychology and just in general, in even in the corporate workplace, in the wellness space. 
in the peak performance space. You know, let's get out of autopilot. And so there's a deep recognition universally, which is one of the things that you spoke about at the beginning. You have universe, you're appealing to universal deep down concepts. And so this concept of the autopilot is very powerful. So why do you think, I, I think you've seen me answer this already, but why do you think so many of us are in autopilot and and what does it look like? You started giving an example of how we react out of anger, but can you give maybe a more specific example, maybe define it more, give a more specific example and do what you do so well, Nicole, which is like make it super practical. Yeah, I love because, you know, in in something you said earlier was really, I think, in, in, emblematic of the answer to this question, which is our reactions have become so habitual to us that they become who we think we are, our personality, our way of being. And again, the reactions that I'm talking about are, for some of us, so embedded in just how we are in our autopilot response that we have no other way to even see that we're reacting to something. So to really make this practical, right? One of my, you know, autopilot go-tos because in childhood, I didn't have the emotional attunement and the safe caregiver to help me navigate my emotions, my emotions, any daily stress, any developmental stress that I experienced felt completely overwhelming. And without that lack of, or with that lack of co-regulation, with that lack of support to understand my emotions, my go-to autopilot reaction from my nervous system driven by that lack of safety was to disconnect myself, to distract myself. For me, with doing something, with performing, Mm. with achieving. I saw very early on that the one way to get my mom's attention in some way and validation, because emotionally she wasn't able to just be present to my being was when I was achieving. So I started to do just that, to achieve academically, to achieve athletically, to shift into this more distracted way of being. And that I came to know as me, I'm motivated, I'm achievement driven, right? I'm successful in these ways, thinking that was me. It took until I entered in my thirties to pull back and to understand the chain of events that actually what is very even validated by society for so many Mm -hmm. of us is endless going and achieving and doing was actually for me a habit that I developed because being was unsafe. Because when I my attention was in my physical body, I was now met with all of those overwhelming emotions that I didn't have clarity on, awareness about, the the tools to navigate. So distracting became my autopilot. And that's what I was meaning earlier when I was kind of describing the many of us that we don't even know we're in autopilot because we're always distracted. We're always on to the next. Our mind is always lost in worries about tomorrow or you know concerns that happened yesterday or whatever it is. We're always thinking, not even realizing that thoughts, even endless self-analysis where it's even directed to bettering ourselves, mm-hmm. is that form of disconnection, isn't actually a state of consciousness. Mm-hmm. And for a lot of us, we do. We escape into our mind. We escape into our actions. And then we wear that habitual way of being is just well, that's who I am. I'm flighty. I'm a daydreamer. I can't get things done. I can't start them. I can't complete them. When really that's not the case at all. What we're unconscious to is how all of this was a habitual way of coping with the lack of safety, with the lack of attunement, with the lack of tools to navigate life with having our emotions. So I think that's a really practical you know, example of Mm-hmm. How we don't, we're not even aware that we're in autopilot in those moments and how most of what we're doing on any given day is our 
subconscious best attempt at navigating our emotions. Because I'll go as far to say, I think that there are very few of us adults that have had that level of safety and attunement in childhood to be truly emotionally resilient, which means to have a life with emotions included, to allow them to color our human experience, to take the value and evolutionary messages that are inherent in our emotional experiences and to not become dysregulated, to stay grounded, to stay connected, mm-hmm. to stay intentional in how we're showing up in those very normal, stressful experiences of being a human. I, I think very mm-hmm. few of us as adults have that. And so something, if not our entire way of being, in my opinion, has grown out of an adaptation to our inability to tolerate our emotions. It's so extremely important, so profound, and it's really deep. And it made me think so much as you're talking, I'm flashing, my mind's flashing through all some of my patients that I used to work with. I don't practice anymore, but just some of the comments that people send and just some of the work that, that, you, that I've done. And you know, you, you stimulate even in my own, in myself. And it's just this, this need to, it's like people, maybe this is what happens to you. It happens with me in my work and people's responses. They start working and they say, I can't find what's, going on there but they know there's something but they can't find but they're so used to being busy that they're looking for the external stimulation versus quieting down and going to find that deep non-conscious messaging you can always talk about as a messy mind talking to the wise mind and listening to that and then suddenly they after a period of time and this is that whole 63 day thing this thing that you're talking about this recognition hey i've been on autopilot there's actually something there suddenly there's this awareness around three weeks and then around six weeks oh my gosh i actually am so different now now that i'm seeing that autopilot um, to use your words is something that was driving and it's not my personality it was a response a coping mechanism whatever whatever we want to call it so i'm so pleased you spoke about that because it also makes me think when i was practicing i worked a lot with kids and i'm just about to release a book in a few months, which we're going to talk about. I don't want to talk about it now, but it's to help parents, to help their children do the science of how to do this, you know, so from young. So I cannot agree with you more, Nicole. We have to teach our kids from two and three years of age. Kids at two and three can already learn how to understand self-regulation. And people say, can they? Yes, they can. The science is there from two months, a child is research shows a child's already able to judge emotions on that very basic level and self-regulate. So I just, sorry, I had to throw that in. I was just super excited by your answer and super stimulated. No, I I appreciate you doing that. And And the reality of it is, is kids are learning. Whether or not we're intentionally showing up, they're watching how we're navigating our emotions exactly. or having a relationship with emotions in the interface of our relationship with them. And even if we're oftentimes saying what the parenting book you know, told us to say in this moment, the impact that's going to be on our children is much more what they're seeing us do. If you're saying it's okay to cry, do I see mom or dad? crying, right? Are you actually showing me in action that you are comfortable with crying? Because if you you are and you're just saying one thing, but I get the feeling every time I express sadness that you're so uncomfortable, Mm. before long, I might begin to suppress the sadness, even though you're telling me otherwise. So even if we you know, aren't aware of that, our children are sponges. They are seeing, they are learning from us. Even if we're not directly saying anything, they're watching. So being really intentional and aware of that fact, not in a shaming way. I think no. that 
you know, the hope is, and this is why I love your work so much is the hope is to empower all of us as humans, especially those of us, you know, who have children with that information that they are learning, not so that we can feel bad about what happened, you know, especially if our children are older as we're coming into this awareness, because again, back to this idea of neuroplasticity, change can happen at any time, right. And acknowledging maybe, you know, and I even know from my parents, there's been so many theories of parenting over the generations mm. that I know that Unreal. my parents are of the generation where they weren't taught about emotional needs. They were exactly. very much, and they came from a context right around the Great Depression, you know, here in the United mm-hmm. States where there was a lot of financial insecurity, making mm-hmm. sure that there was a roof over the head and food on that the children's mm-hmm. plate, right, was was succeeding as parents. So with the information that we have, and as we have new information available to us, it's not to shame any past actions, it's to create the possibility for new future actions. That's beautiful. And what what you, if you think of it, it's a very nice two, very nice bookends because you're teaching people how to be aware of this in a very conscious, deliberate way. Now, those people that you're working with, some are already parents, so they can carry it on. Some are going to be parents. Some are maybe, I'm sure you have a lot of reach, a lot of youth as well. And so they, you're preparing them for the future when they parents one day. So these these skills will carry through so it's really it's incredible and it's like kind of the other side of the bookends we can you can help them fix up one end and and you can help them fix up the other end which is really important and that's not an easy thing to do because in parenting as you quite rightly say oh my gosh to be a parent today i mean i'm a parent of four and they're all adults they will work with me but and even still you never stop parenting but to be a parent today there's just loads and loads of guilt because every Every influence on social media is telling you what you should be doing. And that goes to our very first question about, you know, you can get yourself so caught up in, I've got to do this, I've got to do that, I've got to do that, I'm a bad parent, I'm this, this, this. Meanwhile, you have to do what you say so clearly, which leads me to my next question, is if you know yourself, okay, I'm giving you the broad essence and you can dive in and take it to the detail of how you handle it in your in your workbook. But if you can deal with yourself and give yourself the self-care, et cetera, then you can recognize, okay, that parenting advice is really not something I need to even look at or have guilt in my life. I'd rather channel that guilt into positive energy and do this or whatever. But if you're so caught up with no security in yourself and you're not looking after yourself, you give the example of when you like fell apart and you you realized you hadn't looked after you were so busy looking after everyone else you never looked after yourself that's what a lot of parents are doing and a lot of people are doing caregivers of caregiving is one of the most chronically stressful experiences that wears out and ages one so quickly affecting telomeres and everything telomerase all these everything you are helping to deal with that so maybe start with your little bit of your story and then you know, just take what I've, I've just stimulated a conversation, yes. take it wherever yes. you'd like it to go. I know, I know you, you and I can talk for hours about these things. Yes. Yes. And I think, you know, what you're speaking to, to some extent is beliefs that again, are just as, you know, often passed through generations of what it means to be in service of someone else, to be a parent, to be, you know, a, a, a attached or a part of cultures and different aspects of our grouping that we naturally do as humans. And to really simplify it, Many of us are taught to put family first, to be there, you know, wholeheartedly for our children. Some of it might even be informed by our past experiences, not having caregivers who are available and very well intentionally, right? Wanting to show up in full service 
of someone else so that when we hear things like put your oxygen mask off first, or you can't, you know, pour from an empty cup, we almost want to roll our eyes and slap the speaker of that cliche, because (laughs) what are you talking about, right? To be a good, compassionate, caring person who's in care of very real little humans that I've created, I need to put you first. So I think some of it is influenced by, you know, the culture in terms of what we're taught. Some of it, again, Mm -hmm. is influenced by what we were modeled in childhood. If we didn't see two adults caring for themselves, caring for their physical body, caring for their emotions, learning how to navigate their emotions, then we're going to fall into those same cycles of of neglecting ourselves. of, and this actually goes back to that first question around yeah. discernment. Mm-hmm. And the reality of it is very few of us are connected enough to ourself, A, to be in trust of ourself, mm-hmm. B, to be able to attune and be confident in the messages that we're giving ourselves. So mm-hmm. even if we do feel comfortable enough in stillness, which very few of us do, if stillness, if quiet, if we didn't have the resources to be safely grounded to ourselves, our bodies, our emotions in childhood, I know for me, sitting still, right? That endless going yeah. was my safety, was my distraction. It took me a very long time to learn how to sit in stillness, to be with my own thoughts. And all of that was because it didn't feel safe for me to. And now you're telling me that I need to tune into what I'm saying and then be confident in it. All I learned and was modeled was not being confident in myself, of outsourcing, of asking my family members what I should do, which then translated to asking all my friends what I should do (laughs) and never asking and trusting what I thought I should do. Because A, I didn't stop. I didn't pause to tune in. I didn't feel safe enough to tune in, to be able to even hear what it is that I want it. And if I did have an inclination or an instinct about what it is that I want it, if any part of me would have played a tape out to expressing that one to someone else, and I would imagine that they might be upset or disappointed or perceive me as less than perfect, mm-hmm. you better believe I wouldn't say that to someone else. I wouldn't honor mm-hmm what it is that I wanted. So in all of these ways, you know, when we talk about caring for ourselves, there was no self for me and there was therefore never going to be any self-trust. So the large majority of us as adults, even if you hear me lead into this conversation saying have discernment, very few of us are connected and trusting of ourselves to trust our discernment, which is why I think the byproduct has now become this emphasis on who's dangerous and make sure that they're not right. And monitoring this outside world of what's okay to say and what isn't okay to say. Oh yeah. Because I think we have an epidemic of adults who don't trust themselves for very understandable reasons because we're not connected because we didn't have that space to be curious, to learn from our own choices, to learn from our own instincts and to allow that guidance to rebuild that trust, which is ultimately what my goal is for all of us to separate enough from the conditioning to create safety enough in the body that I can create safety in that quiet moment so I can even attune to what it is that I think, what it is that I want, what I might desire, what I might need. And then over time, we develop the confidence and rebuild the confidence by expressing that in the world. And by either having one of two things happen, everything I feared that would happen, happen, and me have the opportunity to see that I still can be okay on the other side of it. Or what happens more often than not is, what we feared didn't actually happen or wasn't as bad as we thought. And now we can become more and more confident on that inner voice. But again, that's a whole process that begins with a noticing that we don't trust ourselves, that we are Mm -hmm. outsourcing, that we're not putting our oxygen mask on first Mm -hmm. needs what needs. I mean, there was a time in my twenties, I didn't know what I wanted or what I needed. I looked to when other people ate, what they ate for dinner was what I was going to eat. I wouldn't order anything off the, right? I monitored my whole self 
through what everyone else was doing. And until I noticed that, I would never create the space for me to even notice what I wanted, let alone the confidence and the trust to then be able to develop into that discernment. Wow, that's a brilliant answer. And it kind of just leads straight into a comment and a question at the same time. That is religious trauma. I mean, as you're talking, I'm thinking of all kinds of religious trauma where you have got to be X, Y, and Z. And I interviewed someone the other day who actually spoke about someone who's very much in the religious world and had was married for a long time and husband was had affairs and whatever and addictions. And it, it was just destroyed this person and got very sick and nearly died and got breast cancer and all kinds of stuff and went back with the with the man because you don't get divorced. You just make it work. You're a whatever you're this you know this is what you've got to do you've got to make it work there's something wrong with you and this whole also sexist thing you know women of you know what i'm talking about and this person eventually broke free and you know so and found but the comments that they that this person made when i was interviewing them was they had to find themselves first so it's exactly what you're saying and it's not that you're encouraging people to be selfish in fact you can't you are selfish if you don't do this because as soon as you get to know yourself more effectively and not just this kind of wellness self-care stuff because you comment on that in your book too it's much deeper it's much more around what you've been describing it's really understanding your own need because when you own when you understand your own need there's so much more empathy in you and that goes with the neuroscience and the mind brain the psychoneurobiology as well you really cannot unless this is working properly and and that's a process too it's not quick and that's i can't comment on that you know, too, that this is not going to be, you still in a journey, I'm still in a journey of this non-selfish understanding of the self, if that yeah. makes any sense. <laughs> no, 100%. Until we, you know, are attuned to our own physiology, our own emotional experiences, we're not going to be able to be empathetic or be able to feel into someone else's and we're not going to then have that connection. So to know, and again, this is to say that while, you know, emotions are very much the fabric of our human experience, very few of us, going back to what I was saying earlier, have that presence to our emotions, have the ability to navigate our emotions. So instead we distract, we suppress, we deny, we minimize, we do all of these things, which just means that we're not safe enough when we're feeling sad to then be safely connected to someone else when they're sharing their sadness with us. We're probably mm. denying it, minimizing it, distracting ourselves from it or doing... Our, thinking of our own. Sorry, I didn't mean to do it. No, exactly. Doing what we need to do to feel comfortable ourselves or make it about ourselves, not allow ourselves to hold space, right? For the sadness that someone else is having. And, you know, I think that all comes down to and thinking about religious trauma in particular, mm. you know, I do think any, you know, oftentimes the systems that we find ourselves in come with beliefs and then beliefs that get embedded in our habitual behavior. Mm. So we judge ourselves based on what, and not even throwing any religion under the bus, whatever that structure is, whatever yeah. the teachings were, mm. right? Whatever the rules, quote unquote, were to stay kind of in that good morality, good faith, good standing. And, you know, some religions are pretty extreme. And mm-hmm. to speak to your point, I've had many clients coming, you know, from heavily influenced religious backgrounds that well into their adult years are still, you know, holding themselves, even though they've left you know, that religious community or whatever it might be. And, you know, kind of objectively don't quote unquote, believe in that anymore. The beliefs are so embedded 
that they are operating as if they do. They are yeah. still holding themselves, you know, in accountability to those old belief systems. And it can be really problematic because I think a lot of them are based in, in shaming, you know, tying this all together to yeah. even this concept of our authentic self, mm-hmm. shaming these very natural thoughts we have, aspects of our being, just, you know, common human experiences that if we determine for whatever reason it's inappropriate, we're going to shame that aspect of ourselves. Now we're going to limit our ability to be connected to other people and to their own self-expression. We're probably going to reflect that shaming outward to some extent yeah. on other people. And when we talk about being compassionate, we're not going to be able to hold space for someone's unique self-expression and to disagree with maybe their beliefs, but love them, you know, in <laughs> their humanness. I mean, all of that happens when we just allow ourselves to be human, to see all of the different parts of ourselves, all of our different beliefs, all of our different habits, and to really allow that to be present so that we can then truly connect with someone else. Because I'll be the first to say, I used to think myself so compassionate. I thought that's what I was doing when Mm -hmm. I was suppressing my wants and needs, showing up for someone else. Wasn't I being a good friend, right? By being here for you, In reality, I wasn't there for that person at all. If I'm being honest, I was there to manage their perception of me being a good friend. Because if I was being fully honest, I was too tired to be there. I was too overwhelmed and too stressed myself. And over time, the more consistently I showed up to be there for you, I got mad and resentful of you, of this relationship, of what you required of me to do, even though you didn't ask me to do a thing at all. All of this happened so unconsciously in my own mind, mm-hmm. right? That I projected all this perception management on you thinking I was being compassionate and really I wasn't being kind at all to you because I was operating on my own needs to make sure you saw me in a certain way. Another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Families have a lot going on. Let Ollie help manage the mental load with new cognitive health supplements for everyone four and up, like delicious Lolly Focus Pops or Lolly Mellow Pops for kids. And for parents, try three new Brainy Chews to help you focus, chill out, or get energized. Find these cognitive health buddies for the whole fam at Ollie.com. That's O L L Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Wow, that's so deep. That's so profound. And you know, that's so, once again, to quote you, universal. In terms of, like, as you're saying it, the truth, 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 you know, another mic drop kind of situation, which is, it's, it's fantastic. Let me swing it to this. All this, the way you've described the religious trauma and that kind of thing, I just think of a couple of examples off the bat of things like people will say things like, don't be anxious for anything. And that's been a quote from the Bible. And if you, I mean, I'm not going to go into theology or anything, but that in itself is not valid because don't be, do you tell the white bear effect, you tell someone not to be anxious, they're just going to be anxious, mm-hmm. you know, and then also if you don't deal with that anxiety, if you're not conscious of, okay, I'm anxious, why? What, you know, tune in with that consciousness of your consciousness and find out what, that, because that's just a signal, but what's the content behind the signal? If you just suppress that and tell yourself to go away, you're just going to get worse and worse, which is what's happening with people. And then there's more of yourself that's 
de-authenticated and you just continue that habit and that negative cycle, you know, and things like whatever, depression's a sin, and, you know, these belief systems that can really destroy people. So if I understand correctly, that's the sort of stuff that you're trying to help people tap into and find. And it's not anything against any religion or any whatever. It's just how has it affected you and affected your authenticity? Yeah, absolutely. And I think a lot of us, we we do shame ourselves out of mm. certain emotions, maybe because we were directly told not to be, you know, whatever it is, anxious, scared, angry, you know, maybe for very valid reasons. Yeah. So the reality of it is if I'm having that feeling, that's also just as valid. And a lot of us have that internal criticism, that voice, you know, where if we've heard that now consistent, more consistently than not, then we begin to shame ourselves. The second we feel, you know, legitimately upset by something, saddened, angry, appropriately so, we're not even allowing that to have space in our life to, to use the information that might motivate us into action that we need to take because we've shamed ourselves out of the appropriateness of having that feeling. So again, I think your work is so incredibly mm-hmm. important to be able to, you know, kind of understand and see these feelings, these emotions, even in our children, right? And, and again, this applies, I think, to a lot of times well-intentioned parents making proclamations when children are have seemingly irrational worries or fears or not ones that you would have in any given scenario, right? Trying to logic them out of being afraid to go to bed in their room at night with the door closed because, yeah. oh, what? I'm right downstairs. Don't be afraid, right? But what they're afraid of might be something, you know, completely that you hadn't thought of and maybe might not mm-hmm. be something that is frightening to you in that moment, but you're not, again, that three-year-old child exactly. going to bed in that dark room, right, as, who's a different human to begin with. So I think what begins is a very well-intentioned, you know, attempt to soothe other people and adults do this to adults too, right? How many times have you told a friend, don't be upset, look at the bright side, at least it could, you didn't, or it could be worse, right? All of these things that we're probably (laughs) saying to ourselves, maybe not in that context, but around other emotions, because that's the reality. If we can't tolerate, like I was saying earlier, feelings, emotions in ourselves, Mm. it's going to be very hard to hold that space and support and compassion with other people. We probably will shift into that deflection, distracting, telling them to look on the bright side mode. Absolutely. And those are just a sort of filler statements that don't actually, that make people feel worse. And it, it's, they're so habituated in our society that they just pop out of everyone's mouths until, unless we consciously, once again, consciously become so aware of what we, what we consciously aware of. That just triggers another a, a question that wasn't, that I think is very related. That, you know, there's so much talk around boundaries, 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 boundaries. We all talk about it. I wonder if that isn't a reaction to what we're talking about now, that we've got these in, in, in deep habituated patterns and we recognizing they're creating a conflict between our authentic selves and what we should be doing. And therefore we recognizing that. So it's kind of almost like a response that that's taken because it's just that that concept, as you know, is taken, it's like a wild fire that's just everywhere. <laughs> and it's, a, I think people trying to meet that need. I need a boundary. What I think they're saying, they're shouting out a little bit deeper. Hey, I need to recognize my authentic self or something like that. I don't know if I'm verbalizing this correctly, but I wonder if it isn't a bit of a response. It's a great thing to talk about, but I wonder if it isn't a bit of a reaction to the years of suppressing and how things have changed and the change in the zeitgeist. And yeah, I think a lot of a lot of us as we we come to the awareness, whether or not we're living the experience of being a self, 
when we come to that information that there is, you know, a self, whether it's habitual or not, I think the the instinct is to then, because I do think a lot of us came from that more codependent lack of boundaries and mesh transactional, right? I'm utilizing you kind of to meet my own need upbringing yeah. that I think it's very natural that when I come to the realization that, oh, wait, I'm a person too. And I have wants and I have needs. I think it's really natural to then want to put up that fence, right? That mm-hmm. wall even. And I think oftentimes when this is a new behavior, creating new limits and coming from a very codependent lack of boundaried household, I didn't even know what boundaries were. I never even heard yeah. of them, let alone had them, mm-hmm. right? And what I see in myself and a lot of other people when we're doing something new a lot of times we overcompensate, right? We begin to scream boundaries from the rooftops and to put up these walls for people. And some of us even confuse what a boundary is. And we use language of boundaries when really we're giving consequences and ultimatums to people, Mm. trying to get them to change, not understanding that a boundary is really for us. It's a expectation of a behavior and I will give you a consequence of what I'm going to do differently should this behavior continue, not requiring you to stop it at all, it's focused on me, me showing up differently and me creating change. So I think because of the tendency to overcompensate, the tendency to go in an extreme direction where we're now using boundaries everywhere, creating walls instead of a more flexible kind of fence. Yes. I think again, and oftentimes misusing the concept of boundaries and really we're still just trying to control other people and their behaviors because exactly. us humans, we do like to do that to get a sense of yes. certainty and predictability. Yeah. yeah you know, emotional regulation, if we are someone who feels out of control or overwhelmed quite easily or quite often, you know, I do think then it becomes something that to speak to your point is like everywhere we turn, there's a boundary or someone with a new boundary and it could feel aggressive. It could feel inappropriate. And it can sometimes even feel like, like I said, ultimatum based. Mm, that's so, so well put. It's, it's so well put. And I think that is exactly what people are feeling because you've gone, it's kind of extremes, you know, nothing too much and then eventually <laughs> yeah, the balance yeah. is achieved. So I think hopefully we'll start moving in that direction because they are good concepts, but it's just a little bit extreme, I think, currently. You spoke about, you speak about in your workbook and in your work and your books and everything, not maybe necessarily the word autonomy as much, but the concept of autonomy. And, and I always link your work with, think of your work in terms of this recognition of you know finding yourself and de- going deep and I don't want to use all the psychological terms because people are so used to hearing them that they miss the deepness of what you're saying sometimes I think that you know we get used to hearing words and we don't listen beyond the word but I think that this this real even this depth of recognizing that you for example gave 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 to get authentication from the external and you had to learn to see what your internal need was you then stepped into a level of autonomy and that autonomy gave you a feeling. So you started getting control back and that gave you a sense of autonomy and you started being able to look at toxic things and barriers and things as challenges versus and learning from from mistakes as opposed to saying, oh, I made another mistake. That's not good enough. They're going to just like me. I'm now, I can now rather, hey, what did I, you know, what did I learn from that versus, oh, that was bad. So you, you kind of learned to become a very deep person. And I think your work really takes people on that journey. And it's it kind of exciting because the, a lot of the work that I've done is there's a, there's a scale that I've developed that the words that you throw, that, not the words that you throw out, sorry, the, the uh, concepts of autonomy and self-authentic, uh, self-authentication change the brain immediately. So we talk about neuroplasticity. We talk about back in the 80s when I was still studying, which dates me, I'm, I'm 59 now, so it's a long time ago. But in the 80s, 
they didn't believe the brain could change. That's what my professors used to say to me. And that's when I did the research on neuroplasticity. And so now we know your brain's always changing regardless. So if you don't control it like you're consciously and deliberately guiding people to do with your work, then you're still changing, but in the wrong direction. So you're giving a person autonomy, and correct me if I'm wrong, but this is how I read your work. You're giving a person the ability to look at themselves, to get the level of control, to get the level of autonomy so that they can actually progress forward and increase in their empathy towards others. So just those are just some you know thoughts I wanted to throw out there how, about how I see what you're doing. Yeah, I, I love this. And you know, when, when you say autonomy, my mind immediately thought of choice. And yes, I think again, this is the other another, thing you say. Mm-hmm. This is another one of those areas, you know, autonomy, being an authentic. The second we intro, insert the word individual, I do think this is one of the words that oftentimes can get misinterpreted very easily to mean something we were talking about earlier, which is yeah. selfish, which is on an island, right? Which is, you know, doing only for me. And when I say autonomy and building in choice and returning back, even the workbook to our authentic self, what I'm kind of grounding that in is actually the true meaning of interdependence of, you know, this inherent wiring that has allowed us to not only, you know, live, survive as a human species, exactly. but to thrive, the ability to connect with other different individuals who have different natural talents, who do different tasks in the group to sustain life so that I as an individual don't have to do it all. And when we show mm. up as a differentiated person who's separate with different interests and talents and wants and feelings and ways of viewing the world. Now, when we join together, we become a more coherent. I've been doing a lot of research on social coherence and this actual ability to become more creative, more collaborative, solve problems quicker when we're in a differentiated group. This is the contrast with, I think, what a lot of us think, right? When we think individual or when we think community, we think of the same thinking the same thoughts, having the same beliefs, being in the same way. And when we water down our unique experience, our differentiation, what makes us different from someone else, we are joined together, but not in a in a collaborative, creative way of being. So when I think about autonomy and choice and returning to our you know instinctive, authentic self, I think of actually creating a system, a group, a community, yeah. even a global collective that's so much more connected and grounded in that connection and stronger and creative and able to solve problems and actually able to be compassionate creators with other people as opposed to, and that all begins with choice. So that doesn't mean as I become authentic that I turn a blind eye to the group. I actually Mm -hmm. believe as we grow in service and become connected to our inner purpose and passion, we want to be more connected to other people. We naturally want to share our gifts in service of that community. So again, I think this is one of those areas where we think we become more selfish and turn away. Actually, we become stronger, more connected, and more valuable to our group as we live into the uniqueness that is each of us. Oh, I love that. Yeah, it's it's we no one it's pieces of a puzzle if you don't yes. know yourself it's there's a hole in the puzzle and it's just such that you know that basic and that analogy is used has been used for years and we see pictures like in airports of a puzzle with a piece missing what is it what are the missing piece i mean this is the reality we do know i actually interviewed a harvard professor dr robert waldinger the other day and he's run the longest running happiness study and he's, he's obviously been different directors because it's actually been over 75 years and there's 84 years 750 families and you know i said to him okay give me the bird's eye cliff notes what is the what did you what's the main thing and he said it's the 
R, you know, you get the four R's, arithmetic, writing, whatever, school thing, but there's the fourth R. And he said, that is the most important in its relationship. And he said, it's first of all, you'll love this, Nicole, it's relationship with self. And when relationship with self is developing and it's an ongoing lifelong journey, then it's it's relationship with others. And it's that marriage that is, and all these years, he said, all the years and all the stories and that's the prior, that's the main thing that leads to well-being. I just thought that just kind of under, underscores our conversation today yep. and the work that both you and I are trying to do to help people to to kind of get into that. I know we're getting philosophical now, but it's core basic stuff. And we hear this too. I don't know if you find this. You interview lots of people like I do. It's always what comes what it comes back down to. It's, it's relationship, but it starts with yourself and then with others. And it's this parallel development. It's not like, one than the other. It's a parallel development. It's a mind shift into a parallel development. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. I think our relationship with ourselves is the foundation of any relationship that we'll have. And so much so that I'm actually working on another book on relationships. And it begins with that exact idea, which is that, you know, to be, it's actually called how, how to be the love you seek. And to be a loving individual, it really does begin with creating space for yourself, yeah, your so individual, so. your grounded right nature connection to your authenticity so that you are able to then show up from your heart, from that safe place of connectivity and actually embrace, give and receive love in our relationships. But to speak to your point, it begins, in my opinion, it's not going to be a traditional relationship book that you know, I think many people pick off the shelf yeah. and are going yeah. to have tools to communicate their needs and get someone else to do something differently. It's very much framed in yeah. this way that it begins with who you are in your relationship. And if you're not showing up mm-hmm. authentically and telling your partners or your friends or your family what you really think, what you really feel, what you really exactly. need, what you really want. And you're just holding them responsible for just mind reading, for knowing, or for you know serving you that need on a platter, then we're really doing the world around us a disservice. So it begins and is grounded always. And re- I can even expand that to our relationship with all that isn't human, right? Our exactly. nature, our connection mm. to everything even beyond us begins with first and foremost, how connected am I to me? Can I notice that when I'm in nature, I feel differently. I feel more grounded. I feel more mm. at peace. I feel that intrinsic connection because I am part of the natural world. And if I'm not connected to my own physical presence, to the body that's taking me out into that nature, that's even making that choice, then I'm not going to even notice that I am a human being that's connected to other human beings. And in my opinion, to the entire natural world around us, the universe and this whole experience that we're having. Absolutely beautiful. I love that. It it reminds me of some neuroscience research done by some of the top neuroscientists in the world, um, actually one of the top ones. And he talks about how we have 200 different areas in our brain that are specialized for our specific mind. So you've got your 200, I've got my 200. I mean, it's more or less, and these things are always, numbers always change, but the concept is, and your mind, which is separate from your brain, is unique to your particular brain and mind to mind, but they're complementary. And I need you, you need me. And so if we can move into enhancement versus competition. I talk about that in one of my books as well, I talk about enhancement versus competition, which is what I hear you saying. We, we change how we function. And that's what we're needing because we really are living in such a society of individualism. We know the United States is particularly bad. You, you and I have discussed before about community versus individualism a little bit. We've touched on that. And this is really what your work, I honestly think your work is helping people to recognize that. And it's amazing. So I'm very excited for what you do. And I'm excited that we can talk and collaborate and share and uh, you've spoken on a couple of my, one of my conferences and it was really fantastic. You did so well. And 
thank you for all that you're doing. It's just touching people's lives in a tremendous way. Do you have a final word? You're filled with lots of ideas. And mm-hmm. I always find it funny to say, do you have a final word of wisdom? But I always want my guests to kind of, there's something there's something in you that just to close off, what do you want to say? What in this moment do you feel this audience needs to hear in relation to this quite broad discussion that we've had where we've gone over a few different things, quite a few different things? Yeah, I, th- I want to first start, Carolyn, with thanking you. I've been such so inspired by your work. I love grounding things in the actual science. It's a scientific part of my mind that you know really does think that our understanding of ourselves is enhanced when we have these ideas, you know, or this this information about you know how things like our brain work and how our mind is different from that and everything that is coming in between. So I'm forever indebted to the you know incredible wisdom and value that you continue to put out and that influenced me and my own work. And what I want to say to everyone listening is to, to, I want to honor first and foremost, your, your presence, your choice, all of this created the moment of you choosing, and maybe you're a regular listener of this podcast and maybe you're not. And for whatever reason you chose to hit play. And that's yeah. a choice that you made. And you, what you did in making that choice is you probably exposed yourself to maybe some, some new ideas. And I think that when we, you know, acknowledge all of the small choices that we make in any given day. And we don't minimize them because so quickly we can get to the end of our day and, you know, have listened to something like this and just been like, Oh, just another day. You know, I, what I didn't do was, and instead of focusing on all of these moments of choice that you are making the change that you are working toward. And I think that is something to celebrate at every turn. So I want to end by celebrating everyone on here. Or any choice that you have made, you know, in service of yourself and expanding your consciousness and in giving you the opportunity to maybe just even entertain the possibility of a future that looks different from that past. Because that's what it begins with, right? This possibility that you're hearing from someone else that might not necessarily apply to you, though maybe it will. So I want to celebrate all of all of your moments and all of the choices that all of you have made that have brought you here to this message today. Oh, that's beautiful. Thank you for that, Nicole. That that's beautiful. That's a beautiful way to end and help us to start moving into the kinds of futures that we we make our futures, you know, and you help with that so, so beautifully. So thank you for your work. Thank you for joining me today. And I look forward to the next time. I do too. I hope you found today's podcast interesting and helpful. If you want more tips and help with managing anxiety, depression, and mental health, be sure to visit my website at drleaf.com and to sign up for my weekly newsletter where I also include a schedule of my speaking events and so much more. And follow me on social media. I'm on Twitter, Facebook and Instagram. Just look for Dr. Caroline Leaf. Also, I love seeing all your posts on social media about this podcast. I love seeing what resonates with you and what you've learned. So be sure to continue posting and tagging me and letting me know what you think and how these tips worked out for you. And don't forget, leave a review and keep spreading the word about this podcast. Thank you for joining me today. I really hope you learned something new and helpful. Till then, I'm Dr. Caroline Leaf. This podcast represents the opinions of myself 
and my guests. The content here should not be taken as medical advice. The content here is for educational and informational purposes only. Please consult your healthcare professional for any individual medical questions you may have. While we make every effort to ensure that the information we are sharing is accurate, we welcome any comments, suggestions or corrections of errors.